0: Hello and welcome to Property Matters here on Dublin South FM. You can contact the show on Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn at iPropertyRadio or indeed email the show at hello at iPropertyRadio.com. Your host for today is myself, Carol Tallon, and I'm delighted to be joined by Marie Hunt, Head of Research at CBRE. So thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a busy week for your firm.
1: Absolutely, it has. I, I suppose we bring out a, a new report on the first of every second month. So it being the first of March, we've, we've a new report out. So... Thankfully, I can report that all sectors of the market seem to be performing quite well at the moment. So despite the fact that we're in lockdown, it's busy out there.
0: You know, that's such an interesting one. And um in terms of the report, there's actually lots in that. So we will get to it. But before we start with that, um, you know, I, I mentioned that I heard you give a presentation um over the past week about trends in the in um the office market. And I think it's really interesting because there is such a heightened debate going on on and offline about the future of the office, uh, the future of work. So maybe you could give us an overview of how things stand based on your own research. First thing I'd
1: say is our view of the future of the office is probably radically different this March than it would have been last March. So when we went into lockdown first and we began to see that it was possible to be productive and work effectively from home. There was kind of a, a message out there that you know the future of the office was doomed and that we would forever work remotely. And I think now that we've had 12 months of it, I think most people are quite anxious to get back into an office environment. And I think we're beginning to realize that the answer is probably somewhere of a blend between the two. So people who traditionally would have worked full-time in an office will probably take one or maybe two days working from home going forward. Um, but I think absolutely, COVID has shaped. But it was the market, but has accelerated trends that were probably happening anyway. But definitely, we've had a full year of an experiment, and I think it really has changed people's minds as to what the future of the office will be.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I think it's really interesting when you talk about um, the changes that have happened because actually today is the first day where. Uh, my adult daughter is not working for me and is working for another company. And now suddenly we've realized that actually uh, working in different jobs. So now I understand two adults working on different jobs um, is is very difficult in the office. So straight away, like this is only day one. And by lunchtime, we had run into issues like um, uh, broadband when we're both on video calls um also soundproofing because we're very fortunate to have quite a large home office, uh, which is, you know, would happily accommodate four as long as four people aren't on video calls. And actually what we discovered is that it doesn't support two on video calls. So we've been Googling like crazy uh, acoustic room dividers, you know, so these are the things that I didn't even find challenging over the past twelve year or over the past twelve months, and now this morning, it's a problem. So, a problem. and I think it's been I, a bigger challenge for people
1: who've had young kids at home. I know some of them have gone back to school now, but at home, trying to do homeschooling and everybody's using internet, like it's not ideal scenario. Um, but at the same time, I think there's an awful lot of people who would have appreciated the opportunity to work from home part of the time, and it just wasn't tolerated by their employers until now and now this experiment has shown that it actually is possible so I think that there's a whole cohort of people out there particularly women that will now be able to work that maybe traditionally would have had to give up their jobs because remote working just wasn't an
0: option so it, it, it hasn't been all bad yeah no absolutely absolutely and in fact you know again I I personally would have found it quite easy because I don't have young children. Uh, You know, when I think about people homeschooling and I, I maybe didn't have as deep an appreciation of people where there was two parents working and trying to homeschool, you know, again, these are all challenges. And I think one of the things we've discovered is that our homes aren't designed to be all engaged in separate activities in the same place. Our homes are designed for us to be involved in kind of shared activities at the same time because that's generally what happens after work and, and school, um, you know, so there's so much needs to be redesigned. Um, I thought you you brought up a really important point, you know, uh, working remotely and working from home um, was mistakenly kind of used interchangeably. And actually, what we've come to realize is they're really very different terms. So, you know, you spoke about um you know, that it's not just a case of working from the office or working from home, that there's working from this third place. So you might just expand on that a little.
1: I suppose when we, when we talk about the third place, you're probably talking about flexible office accommodation. So over the last couple of years, we've begun to see operators coming into the market. I think the one that everybody knows is WeWork. And there was kind of a question mark as to how these operators are going to fit into the traditional Dublin office market. But in actual fact, there's huge demand now for flexibility. And I, I think in some cases, you know, people, their, their homes may not be set up for remote working, but they don't want to all have to traipse into the central part of the city every single day so i think you will begin to see hubs starting to emerge now they'll be in satellite locations in some parts of ireland you could see remote working hubs in in parts of the country and that was certainly in the, the government strategy on remote working that came out in, in recent weeks so rather than commute to the capital five days a week you might commute to the local hub um but also i suppose third place would encompass things like the local coffee shop if, if you want to go and and use their broadband for a while and and have your coffee. You don't necessarily have to be in a particular place between the hours of nine and five. The whole ethos of working is, is changing. And again, this is something that was probably
0: happening anyway, but COVID has just accelerated that trend. You know, there, there definitely are advantages and disadvantages to that, because actually I'm somebody who was such a fan of getting out of the office, getting into coffee shops, just life. Life energizes you. It gives you new ideas as you're sitting there waiting for an appointment. You're watching the world go by and it's sparking new ideas because you're seeing things that you wouldn't be seeing otherwise. And it's definitely something that I'm that I've struggled with myself, these back-to-back Zoom calls, you know, productivity has shot through the roof. And in fact, um, you know, only this morning we were onboarding new team members, which is so difficult. Um, much more difficult, I think, for the people who are starting new roles than, than for ourselves as a company. Um, you know, so one of the things that I'm I'm just so aware of is that, you know, people are starting roles, trying to connect online, you know. It, it can be it can be really very challenging to try get the the full experience and the culture. And one of the things that I found myself and I think I I think maybe I hadn't admitted it out loud to myself, but actually I found as I, as we were describing kind of the work process over 2020, we've had a huge jump in productivity. You know, our productivity as a company has actually never been higher. Uh, the creativity, you know, it, it's just not on par. It hasn't jumped in the same rate Um, how is that going to, how is that going to feed into decisions? People are required for, for creativity and how how is that going to be catered?
1: I would think there's there's probably more C's than just creativity. I think collaboration absolutely has to happen in an office environment. And I think where you really see is is young people who are starting out, particularly those that have started in the last 12 months and haven't physically met any of their colleagues. Like that must be extremely difficult. But if you think of particularly younger people coming through an organization, they learn by by watching and seeing what's happening. And that just can't happen at home. Um, so absolutely, I think that's where we're going to see most pressure in terms of getting people back physically into an in office. But creativity, you're, you're dead right, collaboration, um, all of these things happen organically when you're in an office environment, and it's much more forced when you're remote. So am I saying you, you all have to be back in the office Monday to Friday? Absolutely no way. But I think the best optimum is, is, is somewhere between the two. Um, and that for particular elements of your role, you will be in the office physically and in other parts, depending on what your job is, you can, you can do that just
0: as well from home. Um, Um, And yeah. Yeah. As, as leaders in this space, you know, CBRE in Ireland are very well placed to see the trends a good while before they're reported on. So from speaking to your clients and from them indeed speaking to their team members and employees, you know, what kind of sense are you getting in terms of how changes, you know, what will the workplace and the office look like, um, you know, in 2022 and beyond?
1: Yeah, well, I think being part of a global organization like CBRE, we've had great insight from our colleagues all over the globe and in particular those in Asia who are a little bit ahead of us in this curve. And I suppose what they're telling us is it's they're back to the office pretty much full time now, but it's a very different office than what they left. So any of the, the buildings that are more modern and can allow for greater flexibility, they've moved the furniture around, they've got a lot more space for collaboration. Um, probably less desk space than what they had previously because certainly everybody's spread out that little bit more and they do have some colleagues working from home more remotely than that they would have previously so what you end up with is is almost like a net net position where you still have the same amount of space but you've less people physically in the office at any point in time so everybody's more distanced um, and even those that have had vaccinations they're still Um, reluctant to go back to a hot desking type model. They're much more comfortable having assigned seating. Um, I think one of the things we've said from the very outset is it's too early for any organisation to decide now how much office space they're going to need going forward. I think until such time as everybody's back and you can do surveys with staff and, you know, get feedback from them as to who wants to work from home, how many days a week, and is that feasible. Um, That's That can only be done when everybody's back. And I think, again, there's no one size fits all because it's going to differ from one organisation to another. So if you look at, for example, a law firm, they may not want everybody out on an open floor. They may still want more individual offices. For a company like CBRE, where a lot of our brokers are out and about and travelling at any point in time, we don't need a physical desk for every single one of them every day of the week. But these are decisions that can't be made I think until everybody's back in the office first and then there's a lot of work that has to be done at that point, figuring out how much space is needed.
0: Yeah, that's a very fair point. Um, you know, and it's not just about, I, I suppose, the company figuring out, as you said, it's about actually surveying people as to how they feel and, and what's going to, to work, because I think there has been a shift in priorities. Um, I, I suppose another, so another big thing this week, um, the real estate market outlook for 2021 report issued. Um, and it it was a bit of a mixed bag, but I think there was maybe some surprise highlights in there, particularly around industrial. So you might just give us an overview on that. I suppose industrial is a sector that
1: investors the world over have been kind of piling into over the last two to three years. And that certainly was something we were seeing in Ireland, too. So both from an occupier and a an investor viewpoint. Um, but I think Brexit has really accelerated that. In, in Ireland's terms. So what you've seen is, if you think of a lot of the big retailers, none of their goods would have been stored in country. They would have been bringing everything through a port or an airport. And over the last two to three years, they've been shifting some of their requirements in country so that they have a certain amount of stock held in country. And if you think back to the shortages that were in the stores this time last year, when we went into lockdown first, um, the whole expectation is to have more stock and inventory held in country going forward to avoid those sorts of scenarios. And now since the first of january you have delays and extra costs and tariffs so as a result that's kind of accelerated that trend so you have a lot of companies wanting to set up operations and that's pushing huge pressure then on the demand for sheds as we used to call them but industrial logistics facilities Um, on top of that you would have some of the uk retailers that would have closed down their irish physical stores but still have a huge Irish audience that want to buy their goods. So they're looking at setting up distribution channels to facilitate online delivery. So they may not have a physical store in Ireland anymore, but you can still buy their goods online. And then last year, the biggest um, pure play online retailer set up an operation here. And the expectation is that more will start to follow suit there. So it's a sector where there's very limited stock. There's plenty of older 1970s and 1980s sheds around the place, but they probably have a higher value use at this point. But in terms of the brand new logistics facilities that occupiers actually want, um, there's plenty in planning, but there's actually very few under construction. And all of them, unfortunately, at this point in time, are are in lockdown because of the construction sites being on hold. So there's huge pent-up pressure in in that particular sector.
0: Yeah, and I, I think that's an interesting one. Because of COVID, you know, and the ongoing restrictions, that's really dominating all of our conversations and, you know, particularly around the ongoing delays to construction. But Brexit obviously is probably, would it be fair to say that Brexit is playing as big, if not an even larger role um, in the demand for logistics here in Ireland? I think a bit like I've said on,
1: on a few occasions now, it's, accelerating what was happening anyway. So we were beginning to see a lot of the the, the distribution moving in-country anyway. We're beginning to see a lot of different types of operators, like data center operators, and what their needs are so specific. So this demand was building anyway, and I think Brexit has just added another layer of of activity to that. And then COVID again, because we were all ordering so much online over the last 12 months, that that has fueled that activity as well. So definitely this is um, a beneficiary of Brexit. And I suppose to some degree, going back to the office market, it also has seen a pickup in activity because of Brexit. Now, it hasn't seen a huge dividend in terms of jobs created, but it certainly has seen a lot of new companies setting up an Irish office and opening maybe a small Dublin office, but the hope would be in time that some of these organisations will grow their footprint here. So both of those sectors have benefited on the back of Brexit.
0: Okay. And... It feels quite early to be asking this conversation you know particularly while we're still in level 5 lockdown um but I mean what are the market expectations for 2021 and I suppose uh, coupled with the market expectations you know you might just give us some insight into the ongoing investor sentiment because we know that has been robust up to now but how sustainable is that
1: yeah, I think there's been a bit of frustration because the expectation in January was that the market would kickstart quicker. We knew that there was a wall of capital there. There's investor demand for all sorts of assets, particularly on the multifamily side. But what we have seen is that that's now been delayed because of the additional lockdown, because particularly with the bigger transactions, you're not going to get an investor or indeed their funders to finalise a deal until such time as somebody's actually physically seen the assets. So the fact that you can't arrive here and travel and do inspections is putting a bit of a halt on things. But what we have seen is that the market has adapted so well over the last 12 months. There's a certain amount of activity that can happen regardless. And if we look at the multifamily sector, you can actually do those deals without necessarily having to travel because you're forward committing to a project that's still a drawing on a map. So those deals can actually happen. So we have seen plenty of activity. Um, The expectation is for a much stronger second half of the year, when hopefully travel restrictions are lifted, but the momentum is building and there's a lot of campaigns that are being prepped for sale. Maybe the the, the launch dates are being pushed out a little bit now until we're out of lockdown, but certainly the, the expectation is for a much stronger second half to the year. And I think for that reason, within our report this week, what we've said is if you are an occupier that's in the office market, you know, looking to the lease space, or if you are a retailer, looking for, now is a perfect time to be doing that because you're going to get deals now that probably won't be there later in the year. But in terms of investor appetite, it is as strong as it was. And I think a key thing to say is this downturn that we've gone through over the last 12 to 18 months is nothing like what we went through last time. So you're not seeing the stress, you know, the investors that are there, the pricing is holding up relatively well. Retail has obviously softened. But again, that's a trend that was happening anyway before COVID. Investor appetite is still really, really strong, and particularly on the, the housing side and around multifamily
0: in particular. OK, it's great to be able to, to end an interview on a positive note. That isn't always the case. Um, but again, for anybody who wants to take an in-depth look at that report, um, the Real Estate Market Out- Outlook report for 2021, it's available on CBRE.ie. That was Marie Hunt, Head of Research at CBRE. We need to take a quick break. Stay tuned.
2: 93.9, Dublin South FM.
0: And welcome back to Property Matters on Dublin South FM with myself Carol Tallon. You can contact us on Twitter at uh on Twitter at iProperty Radio or email hello at i And now joined by Paul Mitchell, director at Mitchell McDermott, project managers and quantity surveyors. Paul, thank you for being with us again today. It's been it's been a while since we saw you last in studio.
2: Indeed, yeah. Good afternoon, Carol. How are you?
0: good thank you. um paul the world has changed a lot since since we sat down um since we sat down in a studio together um first of all, just I, I suppose a really important one most people listening in will be very familiar with Mitchell mcDermott's latest report that issued. in fact, um, I remarked to you off air that uh, certainly it's been a while since an industry report has garnered so much media attention and there was a lot in it. Um, So we might just break that down. But before we get into the report, you might just share an overview of how construction activity is faring.
2: Yeah, I suppose, you know, last uh, March and through April into May, we had our first construction shutdown, um, which was extremely difficult. Uh, It was the first time that uh, sites had shut down, construction had to reorganize itself. And I think the contractors and the CIF did a very good job of working out their standard operating procedures and bringing health and safety onto sites and and dealing really well with it. Uh, It was very difficult in terms of construction claims, uh, productivity, missed deadlines, uh, kind of legal damages and that, that front and to be honest, we 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 were only getting towards the end of those negotiations, uh, which are tense for all because everybody has lost money um, and then obviously construction didn't get shut down in the second national lockdown um, and we were surprised to an extent, albeit everyone was surprised about the increase in cases uh, to get locked down again. And I think you can see now that there's extreme frustration with the length of time that this has gone on. And the fact that the minister uh, with the T-shirt, actually on the 31st of January said, when cases dropped below a thousand, uh, construction would reopen. Uh, that was the first and last time we heard that. Uh, and construction didn't reopen. And and now what people are finding is with part of the industry, a third of the industry or so open, major projects, uh, Grange Gormans open, healthcare projects, exporters, manufacturing, um, and essential, they're all deemed essential products. Social housing falls under the same banner. The dichotomy for contractors is that they have to pay their people to hold on to them. So that the contractors that have contracts managers and programmers and all these people, if they don't pay them fully, they will leave to a contractor potentially that has an open site. Um, because people are still scarce. And then we've had a lot of people not come back from uh, European, mainland European countries due to the lockdown. So I think just in the last week, I think the patience is wearing really thin, and the lack of engagement with the construction industry um, is giving rise to great frustration because people are saying, well, there, there haven't been that many outbreaks. People have been separated we're talking about 60,000 people when I think today we've had 320,000 children returned to school um, as part of the first phase and all of the people that will be, you know, traveling with, the, with those children to school. And they're saying for the sake of the 60,000, is it really going to have an effect? Because the history to date has been, that there haven't been that many cases uh, on site. So that they have been well-behaved and they pumped all this money in and all this training and, you had to do a separate test and you had to have a card and so on to get to site. And that's all been seen as kind of a, not a waste, but there's been a lack of recognition for the amount of effort put in, I think. From So I think yeah. frustration is definitely bubbling over right as we speak.
0: Yeah, Uh, Paul, I would absolutely second that from our own clients and the people we're speaking to. But in what you've mentioned there, there's a couple of things to unpack because um, absolutely this figure, this hope that we got that uh, construction sites would reopen when cases got below a thousand. And uh, within a week of that being said, I think cases got one day to eight hundred and thirty and then the next day was over a thousand and There just there didn't seem to be any clarity, uh, no shining light to to actually show what was likely to happen. Um, So I I agree in terms of frustration. And actually, I think the Construction Industry Federation um, and other industry lobby groups have actually done a really good job in speaking out in, um, you know, maybe calling out some of the less logical alliances. So, for example, um, it's confusing to me why construction and schools were lumped in together over the past few months. So as in, if schools were being shut down, construction sites would be shut down. And and I didn't understand that. But um, and actually, I I genuinely didn't think it was helpful. Um, Mm. So to see the schools go back and construction sites not go back, that just seems like the reverse order in terms of safety and the people we need to be protecting. And, you know, look, I, you know, I, I certainly have not been critical about um, any of the public health a- aspects here because I think it's an incredibly challenging job. I don't I, I, I wouldn't like to be in the position of any of our leaders um, mm-hmm. over the past year or in the coming year. You know, so I, I, I think that they've done a tremendous job. Um, And certainly I it wouldn't be my place to question public health decisions. Mm -hmm. But I cannot reconcile how schools going back, teachers not vaccinated would be a safer environment than construction sites when they have shown to be a lower degree of um, infection. It just doesn't seem logical.
2: Yeah, like it, it's the numbers, really, because you talk about the number of children. My own daughter went back to school today, but you, you talk about the number of people. And then, you know, an article in the paper at the weekend talked about, you know, the fact that you've got the builders, if you want, sitting at home. Well, they're not the type of people to sit at home either. And therefore, are you just giving rise to the potential for, for kind of workers to be out doing Jobs in other people's houses and are, are these people on the move anyway? And, and I think it's not good from a, just a national point of view. And I think we have to keep in mind the infection and we have to keep in mind the numbers and the seriousness, but that's not lost on people and hence all the, the effort and so on. But then no other construction industry is shut down. So then outside people and we rely a lot on foreign direct investment and investment here to produce housing we've talked a lot about that over the last few weeks but if they're saying well they don't care about the construction industry or you know we'll say one thing and then we just won't communicate with you for a few weeks and hopefully you'll have forgotten about it like people are sitting at home and they're being funded by contractors we know that it's a very tight industry with small subcontractors, and it's just a patchwork quilt of, of small subcontractors. But for for no information or no communication to have happened, I think that's the very frustrating thing. And we can understand an effort, and we can understand everything, but I think the mixed messages and the lack of attention given to it you know, are the balance. I think that's probably what's missing is that balance. Um, and with the schools... The, 320,000 plus travelers uh you know or drivers people bringing the children to school maybe uh, or the buses are just you know there is that anyway to to say then that the 60,000 people that play a critical role in delivering housing have to sit at home yet you know it's it is hard for people who are footing a bill every day to watch that and to have no communication on the issues so i think again the, the frustration is there.
0: Yeah, and um, Paul, the last day we spoke with you, you know, we had touched on on, I, and you touched on it at um, in the opening moments of this interview about construction claims, and um, really, the last time we spoke, it was much too early to say how matters like that would resolve themselves, and. I assume that for a lot of sites, it's still too early to say. But I mean, in terms of what you're seeing at the moment, how Mm. is that working out? Because I think you very rightly pointed out everybody's lost money here.
2: Mm. I think for a lot of cases, I would say 80 or 90 percent of the cases the claims have been uh, agreed or a way forward has been agreed uh new contracts have been approached in a different way that anticipate pandemic clauses, uh, liquidated amounts for if the site stops again, what if we have a new variant or some other pandemic. So that's very firmly written into construction contracts and that risk is now identified. So I think people, contractors and clients alike saw that, uh, look, we have to get to, we have to work our way through this. There is no point in anybody standing in ceremony because projects have to get done. And we had a lot of student projects that had to be completed. Uh, hotels that, you know, were on track to open and so on. And a lot of those projects did get to their finish line um, and claims are there. We also have a plethora of other projects where we've agreed the claim situation and the contract situation, which is very, very difficult. And now we're back to doing exactly the same thing, but this time round, there's no money left in the kitty. You know, a lot of these projects were run dry from the first negotiation. You know, nobody anticipated having to pay this money. The revenue is is down or delayed. Um, and the contractors have also everybody's had cost. And and I think I think that's that's gonna be the very difficult piece about this. Uh, and, I, and I think it's gonna take a lot longer to sort out. I think it's gonna like the the pricing from contractors in the marketplace is definitely going to be in flux because the supply demand imbalances in lots of different areas. And uh, we've had student and hotel projects slow. We've got, let's say uncertainty about the office market. And uh, we've got data centers and flying ahead. Um, and residential that there's still, you know, at demand for, and we've got funds that still want to put their money into Irish construction projects. But then if we go below the surface, we'll then see that the, you know, between Brexit and COVID, we've had this destruction to all the supply chains. So we've got this, you know, tariffs and price increases, which caught a lot of people by surprise. You wouldn't think it. Um, But a lot of subcontractors were surprised or didn't understand that if they were getting a product from mainland Europe and it was repackaged or badged or there was something done to it in the UK Mm -hmm. before it came here, that suddenly had a tariff applied. So then everyone's kind of trying to grapple with getting around the UK land bridge, getting things direct. and, And in some cases, actually having your site shut wasn't a bad thing from that point of view as people tried to figure that out. Um, but there's been a range of things like transport costs gone up 300%. Uh, I couldn't understand this. For the first time. I said, why, why have transport gone up so much? And Because the containers ended up in the wrong continent and certain shipping lines were open, but other shipping lines were closed. Containers ended up in the wrong continent and ended up in a supply-demand imbalance. And then you read another headline and it says timber has gone up 10%. Okay, why, why has timber gone up 10%? because Ireland have fallen behind on their licenses for felling in in forests. And you kind of go, okay, so that's a completely different thing. And then you see companies like, um, it's already public knowledge from the company, but Kingspan say we can't Mm -hmm. support certain uh, contracts because our input prices have gone up 65% for certain metal because of the way China now um, Procure and manufacture steel, and you kind of go. <laughs> there's a lot of different challenges going on at the one time when you really want things to just be settled. Um, yeah. So how I- are?
0: No, sorry, but I i suppose then I'm thinking of contractors who are sitting here that have tender bids in front of them and deadlines looming. Um, how? is all, all of these different factors, how is that going to change um, contracts going forward? You know, how, how what is the advice that you're giving, say, to contractors right now?
2: Well, I suppose we're, we're always across the table from contractors. <laughs> we just act for clients. So we say to the contractors, give us your best price, please. Um, apart from big glib about it, I think the impact of this is just a lot of uncertainty. And I think it's very, very difficult contractors who want work, who need work, uh, where this is, you know the pipeline has been, you know that tap has been really slowed. So when the contractors come back and they're finishing their projects that are on site, but they really want to get new work, but when we've got all this uncertainty around, it's very difficult for them because in contracts they buy out that inflation, they buy out that inflation for the next 12 or 18 or 24 months, depending on how long the contract is but they then have to go back to back and sell that risk down to their subcontractors and so on. So it's really the kind of smaller subcontractors. And that's why I think we have to watch the market quite carefully as we reopen as to what happens with the supply chain, because ultimately it's the person at the end of the queue that is is really kind of saddled with a lot of the risk. And when they can't handle the risk, you know, there is the potential for them to fall over. Um, And now we're not seeing that, but as you know, the more the industry stays closed and have to deal with risk on both sides of the fence, you know, it it has to be a case that, you know, there will be repercussions uh, from that over the next few months.
0: Yeah, you know, you're painting quite an alarming picture there, Paul, you know, there are so many negative factors in play here and you know just I I suppose to to jump back to the report that I mentioned there at at the start um, and I I recommend that the report makes for interesting reading so I absolutely recommend um, people go to your website and get the the details from there Mitchell McDermott Um, you know you touched on uh, some of the sectors that are faring well in terms of data centres. And I, I, indeed, I mean, some of the stats around hotel rooms would have surprised people. But I mm. think one of the big shock stories that came out um, of your report was around uh, the residential side of things and the number of units that are have been delayed or are currently delayed as mm. a result of judicial reviews. Um, the process the process uh, to the SHD process has, has really been derailed. Can you can you maybe briefly, briefly share what's been happening in that sector?
2: Yeah, so I suppose we carried out an analysis on this so-called fast track planning, which is the strategic housing development. And that was been in play for about three and a half years. And that's, Grant permission for 65,000 units over that time. Now, on board Planola, so this is where you consult with the local authority um, and then you get permission to go straight to on board Planola. And there's been some controversy around that in terms of people's right to object. Um, but it was due to the amount of objections they were getting and delaying schemes that was taken up to 100 weeks to get planning. Um, as opposed to what's meant to be 40 weeks under the SHD or fast track. But even going down the fast track route on board Planola were refusing one in every five permissions, okay? And that's the board doing its job, that buildings and design that aren't up to scratch get refused. I don't think, I certainly have no, no issue with that. But in 2020, after that one in five, 20%, of the 2020 planning permissions are either quashed or stalled due to this so-called judicial review process. And, you know, if you go back maybe five years ago and you ask someone what JR was or judicial review, they'd say, I think it's something to do with the courts, but, you know, you wouldn't have related it to planning. But I think what people have found is that, well, I'm not happy with onboard Planola, so I'm gonna take a legal review and I'm gonna go to the courts and basically go to the courts and say, I think that onboard Planola have erred in their permission. And that's a very legal procedure. And and I think what we found was that some permissions had been quashed by the board because of sometimes relatively minor issues so there might have been the wrong draft of a report included, incorrect references, not enough dimensions on a drawing. Now, and in some of those cases, you take it, the permission gets quashed, snakes and ladders right down to the bottom of the board again. And it takes four months to climb up that ladder if you don't have to change anything. So you change the date on the report, you correct the reference or you add the dimensions, you climb back up your ladder again and then you submit the planning and they go, yes, you have permission. So all that is, is delay and cost, right? Now, we're not taken away at all from the fact that if there is something material, someone has missed an environmental issue, or there is some particular thing there, then, then fine. Okay, if the board have, have made a mistake, it's it's really the frivolous nature of the of the GR process. And it's really an, an abusive process, really. And it's a just it's a very low bar in order to go to court. Um, so what we said there was that you know there should be a review, and I understand that the the minister for housing is actually looking at this in terms of carrying out a review to say, well, you know, is the process too easy to take? Is it too easy to abuse? The process should still be open for everybody. Uh, cost shouldn't be used um, as a barrier, um, because it should be just about. The facts of the matter themselves. But when we did the announcement, it shocked us um, because we were hearing about it more and more. And even in our projects now, on the, on the residential projects, so Mitchell and McDermott are involved in 14,000 units today, uh, apartments that is not housing in, housing in addition to that. And in the projects where we're project managers, we have to now include an eight week period after we get planning permission. Where we all sit and do nothing. And we wait until there has been no objection or no judicial review taken, and then we move on. So you've kind of got that eight weeks introduced for all projects now, where you can't get your contractor going, or you can't enter into detailed design or your contract stage. And you have to sit and wait. And then if you do get judicial review and, and your permission is quashed, that's a minimum of four months, but it's probably if there's any element of redesign to be done, it's a minimum of six months. And then if it is anything more than that, then obviously it's that time is on top of that again. So, do we uh,
0: sorry, sorry to cut across there, Paul? Yeah. But do we know in terms of you know, you're detailing huge delays, and um, mm-hmm. you know, we can almost make assumptions about the huge cost that would go along with that um not just the cost of delay but also the cost of redoing the application you know do we have an idea of the line whereby these costs and delays push a project into the territory where
2: it's just no longer viable mm-hmm. But we've just, wearing my other hat, we've just issued the uh, Society of Chartered Surveyors report on on apartments where we look at exactly that uh, viability uh, issues on apartments. And we know that we still have issues with viability on build to sell schemes for apartments, let's say. And the only people that are getting us out of jail are people that are taking a long term view on apartments like pension funds and so on that are buying them. And we still see that those metrics are very narrow, um, in terms of making a scheme work. And if you take an example here of 100 units, and if you take the holding costs for the site for a year, let's just say, it is anywhere you know in the order of half a million for a scheme of 100 units. Right? So that's five grand per unit if you were delayed for a year, plus your redesign costs, and um, you know for your team plus legal fees etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So all this is doing is delaying a scheme which has been granted planning, adding cost to it. And in that situation, that cost is getting added on to the ultimate hunter who's trying to rent or trying to buy a unit. So this this process that's happening is only affecting the people like affordability is still our biggest issue in residential accommodation. And a lot of people, a lot of parties, a lot of opposition parties talking about affordability. But at the same time, you know, saying that JR process, there's nothing wrong with that because it's stopping big bad developers delivering us homes.
0: It's very frustrating, Paul. And, you know, it's the kind of thing that actually I could talk to you about all day. And and I would love to talk to you about it all day, but I I don't think that we'd even solve get close to solving the issue. Um, but it's definitely something that we've touched on before. We're we're likely to return to. Um, but in the meantime, um, that report has put a lot of things in very sharp context mm-hmm. for not just for us, but as you say, for um, you know, for hopefully policymakers as well. So it would be good to see some change coming out of that. Uh. For now, that's all we have time for. Thank you so much for being with us today. That was Paul Mitchell, Director at Mitchell McDermott, Project Managers and Quantity Surveyors. We need to take another quick break. Stay tuned. 93.9
2: 93.9 Dublin South FM.
0: And welcome back to Property Matters here on Dublin South FM with myself, Carol Tallon. You can contact us on Twitter at iPropertyRadio or email hello at iPropertyRadio.com. Now, I'm now delighted to be joined uh, across the water from uh, from uh, the US, Michael Beckerman, CEO of CRE Tech. Michael, you're very welcome. I, I've been a longtime admirer of your work and I'm so delighted you're in a position to join us today.
3: Carol, it's my absolute pleasure. I'm a fan of your work as well and happy to spend a few minutes with you today.
0: Well, thank you. Um, you Now... I'm hoping that our audience will be well familiar with your work because we share it often through PropTech Ireland. You know, one of the things we're really keen to do um, is share the experiences and the learnings from industries that are a little more developed than ours when it comes to not just PropTech and, and tech for commercial real estate, but also a very exciting initiative that you're working on, which is around climate and sustainability. And that's a really big focus for today. But maybe for people who aren't familiar, you might just give a little bit of background to yourself and, and CRE Tech.
3: Yeah, thanks, Carol. So we've been on a mission at uh, at Crete Tech for, say, the last eight years or so about helping the real estate industry as a whole embrace technology and innovation. Um, it's an industry, that obviously, that you know incredibly well that historically has not made the investments, both in terms of dollars and and people and tools and applications in technology and innovation, simply because they never really had to. The industry worked incredibly well for for generations. but um, So we we set out to build this community globally. And thanks to friends like you and your colleagues, uh, it's not just the US, but it's a global audience. Approaching probably close to a hundred thousand professionals. So, you know, our main business has been physical conferences. Obviously, now virtual conferences. We also um, have a streaming platform called Crete Tech Plus, where we take a lot of our video content and stream that uh, in a format very similar, obviously, to a Netflix type of product. So, it's it's uh, the community consists of venture, it consists of startups, and it consists of the end users, which will be the corporates, the landlords, brokerages, asset managers, construction companies, and what have you. So it's a pretty big audience. And um, pre-COVID, I would tell you that um, the amount of money coming into the ecosystem was extraordinary. Every year, it was seemingly doubling and tripling um, into the multiple billions. Um, The number of startups uh, on the scene uh, was extraordinary. 7,000 at last count focused on this sector. But adoption was still always slow right? Uh, COVID was an extraordinary accelerant, for the wrong reasons, of course, of technology in all industries. Right. And we saw it, obviously, in, in real estate. So now we're finally starting to see some uh, adoption on, on the real estate tech uh, uh, side of things.
0: You know, th- that's really positive to, to hear. But why, in your opinion, was the built environment seemingly immune to digital transformation for decades?
3: Yeah, right, Carol. It's uh, you know, those that come into the industry and don't have the experience say that you have uh what they'll say is oh it's archaic or it's uh, it's old fashioned or it's slow to adopt change. That's not the case. The, the simply the the industry worked very well as for generations. It just you know, the architects had a role and the uh, the financing uh, aspect of the industry had a role, construction, uh, leasing, marketing, things just worked the way they worked. So, and the industry was thriving, you know. Uh, so there was no real external impetus to try and get the industry to embrace technology. Um, in most other industries, there is, right? So in retail, it was e-commerce. It kind of forced you know the retail industry to adopt to technology and change uh in in finance it was a lot of the day traders uh that that forced uh the big banks to try and adopt to technology and in real estate uh, sadly it was it was covid so now we're at the point where they're also working from home largely, or they're having to bring people back into their spaces in a healthier and safer way. They're having to transact where not everybody's in the office. And what they're learning is they're getting better as a result of all these uh, investments that they're making. The core challenge, though, still remains, Carol, that there's not an infrastructure in place for for, for real estate companies to vet, invest, and adopt technology, they don't have the people, they don't have the processes. So that's where we're still a little bit behind. Uh, and also, uh, you know, as uh, my friend Steve Weichel at MIT calls it, you know, the fracking of, of real estate technology. There's just simply too many individual siloed solutions, so it makes it hard for the real estate industry to adopt all of these individual solutions when they don't even have the the resources to do so. That's why we're starting to see more of end-to-end solutions that are being built by the technology companies. And th- those are the ones that are really starting to scale.
0: Um- I, I absolutely agree with you in terms of this siloed and and quite disjointed um, rollout of innovation. You know, we see it at a, at a kind of a micro level within smart buildings, and we see it at a macro level, kind of within smart cities. But for your own business and your own team at Cretech, but you know, you're an events business, so actually this was probably the time where you had to practice what you preach. And, (laughs) and I'm asking this question kind of twofold because one, I'm genuinely curious to see how you were able to do it together with your own team, but also you're actually one of the resources that opens up this, these silos of innovation to people. So actually without those, without that platform, where are people getting the information? So I mean, how how have the how have the last 12 months been for you and your team?
3: Well, my beard used to be all dark <laughs> and and black and what have you. Now you could tell what the impact has been. Uh, so um, that's a great question, Carol. So with us, we always had the core uh, premise and the strategy of let Cree Tech be a place where the real estate industry can go to discover the best technology solution strategies and uh, That never changed. What we had to adapt to was, well, they weren't going to go to a place to do it. So perhaps they'll go online and do it. Now, in the beginning of the pandemic, and not to get too much into the weeds on my own uh, business or industry, it was new. It was unique. It was cool. It felt interesting to to watch a couple-day conference online. And then just like everybody else, the Zoom fatigue just set in. So it wasn't, and the great thing about being a virtual conference company is you get all the data. So now we have all this data that says what people are watching, when, for how long, and we can analyze it. And one of the things that we found was there's too much online content. So we then decided we're going to make all of our conferences free. We'll track the best audience we possibly can, and then we'll move it to a streaming product where people can digest it. On their own. And that was a, and that it's made our company better, honestly, as a result. So our, our physical, our, our virtual conferences are still good. They're growing. We got great talent, great speakers that we're really known for. Um, and we're just distributing it in different ways. And I do think that we'll be back um, confident in the physical sense. And we'll have uh, something planned in Europe in uh, at the end of this year, as well as New York. So we'll come back.
0: And I'm delighted to hear that. But I'm fascinated um, just in relation to the data about what what this industry is watching you know what topics were of interest uh tell me what most surprised you when you looked at it
3: well a couple things <laughs> so um we did an event recently where we're doing these matchmaking events online and there's no content. It's just, you know, creating a, the, the, the huge audience that Cretech has and, and delivering sort of just this matchmaking uh, uh, platform for a day. And it's been extraordinary. And the feedback is incredible. So one of the things that we learned is people want to connect, but they want like-minded you know, smart connections that are, are are valuable to them in whatever they're selling, promoting, learning, trying to digest. So that that works. There's a great demand for just pure networking online, uh, other than, you know, in, in a non, you know, other than LinkedIn, obviously, but like this. Uh, number two is, you know, what they're looking for is um actionable ideas and solutions where they can see examples of what's been done effectively. So what they want, which is what we've always done at Crete Tech, is try and put people on stage that can show specific examples where technology worked, what the ROI was and how it benefited their company uh, uh, as a result. So time and time again, less theory, less You know, grandiose ideas, more practical, uh, real-world case studies examples. That's what the audience is looking for. How?
0: Yeah. Well, okay. I think that from my point of view, um, certainly in the European approach has never been one to appreciate failure. We aren't good at learning from failure. And in fact, we often quote maybe uh, the U.S. market and say, "Okay, these guys understand the value of failure. You know, this is something, you know, certainly from an Irish approach and uh, very much an English approach, it would have been considered failure as something that's almost contagious. So you don't talk about it. Um, and I, that that's really changed over the past decade since the crash uh, and subsequent recovery. You know, now it's kind of a badge of honor. So we're definitely getting better around that. Um, but there's a little bit of tokenism still. So actually, because, you know, even though, yes, there's been innovation across the built environment for a long time, you know, we're seeing a change just because of technology, both as an enabler and a driver. Are we talking about the failures enough so that people can have confidence in it?
3: Yeah, I, that's a wonderful, wonderful assessment. And I agree with you. And listen, you're talking to somebody that has probably set a record for the most number of failures in his life. And everything I do, I learn from failure. So I embrace it. And I think it's a wonderful thing. Uh, not all the time, but uh, I'm totally comfortable with with you know telling people and showing people this worked, this didn't work. This is what I'm working on. Just like I told you, I mean, I'm not here to promote. I want to offer some insights into Help other people. This worked. This did it, and this is what we're doing about it. In the world of technology, I think you're. I know you're right. What the best speakers? And again, we're not a pay-to-play platform in that sense. That if you see somebody speaking, and they're and they're they're an owner, landlord, uh, construction company, they've been really. Uh, they've, we've gone through a great process at Creetech of understanding what they're going to talk about. And to make sure this is not just a place to promote, this is a place to teach and learn and set by example. Now, that's the wonderful thing I love about our our industry, the one that you and I share is it's incredibly collaborative. Like everybody I find, for the most part, just wants to help everybody else out. It's not as competitive as it is in other industries. So we'll put people on stage and we'll sit there and say, we tried this, it didn't work. Uh, we tried this and it worked and we accelerated it. And those are the best speakers and that's those are the ones that we try and find. And our, our, our audience, I mean, you know I, I've had speakers that um, you'll find uh, uh, that's that are from the landlord side that, that that challenge the startups and say, this is why I can't adopt your technology. This is what you're not hearing. this is what you're not paying attention to, understanding my needs. And those are the best speakers. and we, lo- uh, we, we, we feature a lot of that type of style.
0: Yeah, I, I think the industry needs to to you know it, it does come down to case studies, but case studies that that doesn't mean hand picked to only show the successes. We need to know what doesn't work so that we understand what's been tried, and it gives us a deeper understanding as to maybe what may work uh, and we can break that down. So I I think that's so important. And, you know, actually I don't want to jump topics abruptly, but I'm very aware of time. And I'm also aware that one of the really big reasons why I reached out to you to do this interview is around uh, an initiative that you have started, uh, Cretech Climate, and I think it's really important because at the moment I mentioned to you that the construction industry in Ireland, all non-essential sites have been shut down since the eighth of January. Um, it's really worrying. The industry is increasingly frustrated, and you know we're doing this um, off the back of uh, a housing crisis. You know, so there are, there are a number of frustrations happening. And one of the concerns that we have just by stepping back from the chaos and taking a bigger look is that, um, you know, one of the things that happened is that in the the COVID crisis, we almost lost sight of what was happening um, in terms of Brexit, which is, is continuing to have a massive impact on the industry in Ireland. And to a greater extent, we're seeing this happen in terms of sustainability initiatives that there's a there's an issue with us looking too closely and staying too close to the centre of the chaos that we're not looking at the bigger picture anymore. So from our point of view on the show here, we really want to keep sustainability to the fore of our conversations despite the ongoing chaos. And from that point of view, I was looking at some interviews that you've done recently and around the launch of of Cretech Climate. I think it's really interesting. I think it's something that, in Ireland we can really stand to learn from. So you might just take us through that.
3: Well, on on this one, Carol, I I am by nature a very optimistic person. Um, I don't mind. I've always in my whole career gravitated towards what was hard and what was challenging and what was difficult. There's just something about the way that I'm wired that I, 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 go where it's, there's going to be a, a significant challenge for me in my own sort of professional development, as well as, you know, um, attracting others to try and solve big problems. Obviously this is the biggest challenge, not just for me, for all of us who climate change. Right. And, uh, I am absolutely without any reservation or has, uh, that climate change is real and, uh, the threat to our species is significant. So I'm doing this not because um, I think it's a great PR opportunity or it's, you know, it's a hot, cool, you know, a uh, box to check and say, Oh, now we're pushing into this because this is a fad. I'm doing it with a great sense of fear. Uh, I'm scared of our, our humanity for my children's generation and they're, their children. And I'm not very optimistic either um, that we're going to get this right. But I'm going to give it everything I got. I'm going to put my name on it. I'm going to put my I'm going to bring it to my big audience. I'm going to look for people like you to help us. And and, you know, I think that for the real estate industry to understand now, the compelling argument is that external forces are going to converge on real estate, that are going to put such a spotlight on the built world and its contribution, its negative imp- contribution on climate change, that we're not gonna be able to escape uh, the culpability of the fact that 40% of all carbon emissions are emanating from the built world. We can't hide from that. We're kind of flying below the radar screen right now, but most people are still thinking it's energy, it's transportation, it's you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's the built world we are incredibly responsible. So we have this opportunity, but we have these pending threats, whether it's government, tenants, uh, residents, people that want to live in these spaces, to take this on now with a great sense of urgency. Uh, but I'm also concerned, to be brutally honest with you, because like you said, there's so many other challenges out there you know, in this kind of COVID environment that are competing for everybody's attention and solutions. So I'm doing all that I can within a wonderful consortium of companies like EY and Savills and Fifth Wall and and ULI and RXR and um, others and Oxford Properties to really raise this level of awareness and education. But with a great sense of urgency, because, as as you know, well, Carol, we, we don't have time. So. I'm hopeful, but we got a lot of work to do to get our industry to wake up and see it also as an incredible opportunity to, to really change the world um, as in, uh, along the way and in the process. So that's what I'm trying to do. And that's why cretech Climate was formed.
0: Michael, we want to help you. What are... What... How can we help? And I don't mean just me as an individual rolling out into organizations, you know, and then rolling further into the industry and and keep rolling that wider and wider. What? But there has to be a a starting point. You know, there's this the, the one thing about a journey is that it has to start from wherever you are now, not from what we ought to have been doing a decade ago. So from where we are today, You know, what are the first steps that we need to be taking? What are the the basic things that we need to be um, checking off the list to say, okay, well, now we can start to get into bigger things? You know, it's a very big conversation and I'm conscious that this is a very short interview. But I want, you know, you you talked about kind of the value of um, actionable ideas. You know, what actionable idea can we give to the industry today?
3: Well, honestly, I think uh, the, the first step is just join cretechclimate.com Sign up. It's free. It's a daily newsletter. We need people first to get involved. Right. That's step one. I could give you a list of extraordinary solutions, technology solutions that are out there that, that that the companies could start to look at. But we need people. We need to build a community and fast. I don't have 10 years like I built with cretech to get 100000 people. I've got to get that now. So the first thing we need to do is mobilize an army of people who care and are passionate about this in all walks of the built world. Right. So I don't know. I don't care what your title is, what your company is. Just join the, this movement. And once we get start to build the community, then we could bring into the thought leaders into the conversation. Then we could bring in government. Then we could bring in their technology solutions. There's some great investors in Europe as well. 2150, AO Prop Tech, And uh, there's there's many others that are doing good work. My job is to build the community. Great. You know, galvanize the audience, educate them and then move them. So I think step one, Carol, honestly, is what you're doing right now is just let's get the word out, sign up, get involved.
0: Okay. Michael, you have our commitment. We we will start that ball rolling just from our own organizational point of view, but also in terms of rolling it out. I think it's massively important. and You know, it's like all of these things, we need leaders in this space. And sometimes when leaders are needed, they don't always step forward. And I think you know, we're starting to see some amazing, inspiring leaders um, and including yourself and the organization. So it's definitely something that we want to, that we want to make sure that we support and make sure as many people as possible know about. Um, Michael, I I could talk to you all day. I I wish we had more time, but I
3: hope
0: hope we get to do this again. Um, Thank you so much.
3: Thank Thank you you so so much for joining us appreciate all your support, all your leadership and uh, everything that you're doing. You're a great fan of cretech but more importantly, for the entire real estate tech ecosystem at large. So thank you for all your hard work. I appreciate it.
0: Michael, I normally have to pay for such praise. Thank you so much. That's, <laughs> Thanks, it. That's it from us today on Property Matters on Dublin South FM. You can get in touch with the show on social media at iProperty Radio or by emailing hello at iPropertyRadio.com. Also, my thanks to Peter Rice on sound and to show producer Katie Talon of Hear Me Roar Media. And just on a personal note, after more than two years as our producer, today is Katie's final show as she moves on to Pastures Green. So she's moving on to one of Ireland's leading media groups, and we're not at all bitter about it. We wish her the very best of luck. Um, And so that's it from ourselves. We'll be back the same time next week for myself, Carol Talon, and all the team here. Stay safe.